This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Now he's somewhere over China Looking down on all the trails Well, there's a lot looking over China, and a lot of it comes from Washington, D.C., where we have Caitlin Weber, our government analyst for U.S. trade policy for Bloomberg Intelligence. And you can follow Caitlin on Twitter at Caitlin Weber. And she joins us from our 99.1 studio. Also with us is Tim Culpin, technology columnist, Bloomberg Gadfly, he can be followed on Twitter at T. Culpin. That's C-U-L-P-A-N. All right, uh, T. Culpin, uh, based right now in uh, our 960 studio in San Francisco. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about the reaction in the technology community to uh, tariffs and trade policy when it comes to the Trump administration in China. Well, what's interesting, I think, is that you know we can understand the frustration by uh, you know President Trump and the U.S. people about China supposedly getting uh, an edge, an unfair edge, stealing uh, intellectual property, stealing jobs, and so forth. But think of the big uh, U.S. tech companies; it doesn't necessarily apply to them. Apple, of course, makes hardware devices, but you think about Facebook and Twitter and and those kind of software companies, uh, Google as well. There's not a lot that applies to them in this regards. They're not in China. They've been out of China for for quite a long time. And so anything that, uh, that could be brought in, such as tariffs or so forth, doesn't really apply. Apple uh, does certainly have a certain amount of risk. Most of its devices are actually you know made in China, but they are developed in the US. Uh, so a lot of the actual value add is, is right here in California. And it's really just the last parts of the puzzle that are put together in China. So if uh, tariffs go in towards uh, that are focused, for example, on mobile phones or whatever, that by, might actually be cutting off the nose to spite the face. So uh, I think that uh, the US uh, president would need to be very, very careful about which uh, products he wants to put tariffs on and whether or not they're really going to help or hurt uh, the US tech industry. I don't think they will. I don't think there's much they can do about the tech side of it. Caitlin, does this mean that when people go into an apparel store, they're going to face higher prices? You know, we it's interesting because we uh, didn't hear um, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer mention apparel, uh, footwear, um, toys, a lot of other consumer products that we rely on heavily for China this morning um, in testimony before the Senate Finance Committee when he was asked about what products they're going to target. He really focused primarily on the tech sector. He also mentioned uh, aerospace um, you know, machinery, new energy vehicles, even biopharma, but he stayed pretty far away from those um, consumer products that I think a lot of Americans, a lot of people in his base would have, um, you know, more of a sort of a, a immediate reaction or association to. Okay, so a little bit more, Caitlin, from you, because if we're talking about computers, mobile phones, even automobile parts, if these are on the top of, of the list, uh, who do they really hurt? Do they hurt specific companies like Apple and Samsung? It really depends on the product and, and where the company is sourcing and whether or not um, you know, the U.S. is particularly dependent on that import source. Like If you look at Apple, again, we'll, you know, we'll mention again mobile phones, 
you know, targeting mobile phones with, with tariffs, the U.S. really has no domestic manufacturing there. And if we do hit mobile phone imports, which right now are duty-free with this 25% tariff, not only will Trump voters, most Americans really dislike that, but it's not going to, that, that production is not going to shift to the U.S. That production is going to shift to Vietnam or South Korea, other places that already make mobile phones, you know, albeit not as much as China. Um, and, and those countries will still maintain duty-free access to the U.S. So, it, you know, companies are going to really wrangle when this this list of 1300 products come out they're going to really wrangle with with how you know how this affects them what are their other options um, to, to deal with these potential sourcing disruptions and tariffs well uh, Tim uh, I read uh, one of your more recent columns uh, which I commend you for because it focuses on things like the, are we really asking the right questions. The column focused on artificial intelligence, but I'm wondering whether we are doing the same thing when it comes to these kinds of tariffs and trade issues. Uh, maybe just give people a little bit of a flavor of what you were writing about and whether that is something that we can extrapolate from. Yeah, well, first of all, I agree on the point that, you, that was just made about uh, you know devices or whatever being made in places other than the U.S. A lot could be then just made in India, which also already has tariffs itself, or Vietnam or elsewhere. And so uh, I, I agree. I don't think there's going to be a lot of domestic manufacturing suddenly pop up as a result. So who's going to get hurt? It's, it's actually just going to be U.S. consumers who are going to pay a lot more for a mobile phone or, or a computer. But there is other issues, that, and, and you talk about that, you know, the intellectual property issues in China, a lot of it is being kind of, you know, if, if you want to say stolen by China and used within China. Uh, and so a lot of it's not necessarily leaking back to the U.S. Uh, and then hurting, uh, you know, U.S. manufacturing or, or U.S. industry in that way. And so the question really needs to be, what is the goal here? Is it to create U.S. jobs? Uh, and is this the way to do it? It seems to me there's a lot of mixed messages, a lot of things thrown together at once. You know, we're talking about IP, we're talking about jobs, which is, you know, of course, the great rallying cry for, for Donald Trump. Uh, but, you know, there is other areas where China is, is doing very, very well. Artificial intelligence, uh, they're doing quite well. I would say that the U.S. is is ahead right now. But there's a lot of areas where technology, it's not about who has the best technology, but it's how they use it. And that's what I think we need to be careful of. A lot of the technology that the Chinese are trying to steal could be used within China, but to further their own means. I want to thank you both very much. Tim Culpin is technology columnist, Bloomberg Gadfly. Follow him on Twitter at T. Culpin. Check out his articles and columns on Bloomberg.com. And also our thanks to Caitlin Weber, government analyst, U.S. trade policy, Bloomberg Intelligence. Follow her on Twitter at Caitlin Weber. Somebody bring me some water. Can't you see I'm Water, the essential element, and thirstforwater.org, one of the essential participants in this World Water Day of 2018. Here to tell us more about the organization and the world's thirst for water is Mina Guli, the chief executive of thirstforwater.org. Mina, thank you very much for being here in the studio. Tell people about thirstforwater.org. What is its mission? Pim, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity to come and talk to you about my favourite topic, which of course is water, on this very special day, my favourite day of the year, which is World Water Day. Um, Thirst for Water was I set up um, a couple of years ago because I wanted to raise awareness about water. Actually, my goal is to make saving water famous. Most people don't know that the world has a massive water crisis, and this is not just a problem that is happening in other parts of the world. This is a problem that's happening right here in the United States. Right Right here today, more than 130 million people 
have water scarcity, 130 million people right here in America. So what I want to do is to make people aware of the problem, connect them to it, and then encourage people to take solutions every day to the to help to solve the water crisis. Okay, let me a- a- ask about what you perceive to be some of the obstacles to people getting access to clean and potable water. I think that there are a range of different um, problems. I think one of the things that we don't realise is that water impacts our daily lives. It impacts everything we use, buy and consume every day, from the shoes that we're wearing to the pants to the jackets, the shirts, the amazing, fantastic outfit that none of your audience can see, but I can see in front of me now, took more water to make than all the water you have drunk in your entire lifetime. The numbers are staggering. And I think what that what that means is that actually we're all connected to water all day, every day, and we don't realize it. What I hope is that by making people realize that we all have water with us full time in everything we do, we can help to we get, it helps it connect us to the problems on the ground. Okay, but I guess where I'm going is why are some countries seemingly better at managing their limited or scarce water resources than others? So, for example, in the field of agriculture, you have the introduction of drip agriculture, which is in many ways much more efficient than, let's say, flooding fields or the indiscriminate use of water because it might have been paid for by another entity, or indeed it might even be so inexpensive that you don't care how much water you use. Yeah, it, there's a perverse – if you look at the way that – I mean, there are a couple of things that happen here, right? The first one is about water pricing. If you look at how water pricing is – water is priced around the world, there are many places where water is terribly scarce, and yet it's really cheap, so we know that pricing doesn't necessarily cause this a change in a, a, a change in behavior. I think a big part of this is actually getting people to understand water is a scarce resource. It needs to be valued. And once we know it needs to be valued and that every single drop that we have of it needs to be protected, we can change behavior. A big part is, for example, getting people to understand don't water in the middle of the day or turn off the faucet when you brush your teeth. These are just simple things that we, any one of us can do all day, every day. Right, but I'm just thinking even in the Western United States where so much of the water politics has to do with where the water comes from, where it originates and where it ends up being used. Let's say in farmland, which is many miles away from the source of the water. And then there are fights over who actually has access uh, to that water. So I'm wondering if it were made so that the water were priced by those who use it in an appropriate way, do you think that would change people's behavior? You're saying that it would be better to have a higher price on water? Or at least a market price so that you, it would be treated by, let's say, if you're a farmer or you're an industrial user of water, then you pay a price that is applicable to, let's say you said, people's uh, clothing outfits, use an incredible amount of water, but they're not aware of it. But if you had that factored into the price, because the apparel maker had to charge, had to be charged for that, maybe that would make the apparel maker a little bit more uh, efficient in their use. Yes. I think that there's a fine line between increasing the price so much and also making sure that everyone has access to the water that we need for life. You know, we all say without water, there is no life. So there is also this aspect of it being a, a human right. And in Many of the conversations I've had with government officials, this is a really sensitive topic of pricing and increasing the price on water. I think that 
where I come from is to say we need to change consumer behavior because consumer behavior can drive economic demand for more to, more water sustainability in supply chains. If you think about it and say, well, as you pointed out, there are many ways that you can make clothes, grow cotton more sustainably. For example, drip irrigation. There are also new ways that suppliers are using to actually recycle clothing so that you can make, for example, a cotton T-shirt with zero water just by using recycled cotton. And I think if consumers can start to look for these kinds of products, look for the recycled cotton or the organic cotton or the cotton that's made in a sustainable way, these things, they look the same, they feel the same. They cost, in some cases, less. If we can drive companies to say, actually, we as consumers want you to supply this, I think we'll, over time, create a change. You're, you're of course, aware of the water crisis that has currently hit Cape Town, uh, South Africa. Um, From uh, press reports, I understand that there were representatives from Israel and engineers who were made available to the South African government to come in and try to offer some level of expertise. That was rejected under political issues because they didn't want that kind of assistance. At what point does the crisis become so uh, uh, serious that uh, countries put aside the political issue and say, all right, let's find out how to do this smartly and get the people who can figure out how to make, in many cases, the desert bloom. When we as consumers demand that things change, things will change. I think that we cannot afford to do things the way our parents and our grandparents have done them before us. We need to do things differently and we need to do things differently now. By 2030, experts predict that there'll be a 40% greater demand for water than the supply of water available. We we already just talked about how much water goes into supply chains. Think about the the implication, the ripple effect of this whole system. Once, Once water becomes constrained, supply chains become constrained, jobs become constrained, economies get affected. The impact of the water crisis is far greater than not being able to get water out of your tap. It will fundamentally change how we live. So one of the things that I'm doing this year is that I'm going to run 100 marathons in 100 days with the support of Colgate to raise awareness about the water crisis and to demonstrate what it means to be 100% committed to finding solutions to these things. I think as human beings, we think that these problems are too big and we can't solve them. I really, truly believe that every single one of us can make a difference. If we care enough, anything is possible. And I think that includes solving the water crisis. Thank you very much for sharing your views with us. And uh, good luck with your marathons. And please drink lots of water in doing so. Mina Guli is the chief executive of thirstforwater.org. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. We are waiting a conversation with U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. He'll be joining Bloomberg Television Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley. He'll be talking about the U.S. imposition of trade tariffs uh, going uh, into effect against uh, China. Also, uh, we'll probably be asking him not only about the tariffs that go into China, but the potential retaliation on the part of the Chinese. Uh, Commerce Secretary saying that he doesn't think that there's going to be a trade war uh, with uh, China resulting in those t- latest tariffs. Let's go to Julia Chatterley and uh, an interview with Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary. Commerce Secretary, great to speak with you once again. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Can I just start by asking how you arrived at the $50 billion figure that we've talked about today and whether that could gradually increase? Well, I think that was an illustrative figure 
when we publish the actual list, which should be in very few coming days, that then we'll have an exact tally. Let me just also clarify with you. Um, when we talk about 50 billion, I understand that this is an, a, 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 in a way placeholder for now until the exact numbers publish. Are we talking about tariffs on 50 billion dollars worth of Chinese goods or tariffs that are worth 50 billion dollars? No, it wouldn't be tariffs of, of 50 or 60 billion. It would be the amount of goods on which the tariffs were levied. So if we're talking about, let's say, 25% tariffs, we're only talking about a figure of, of $12.5 billion, let's say, maximum at this stage. I mean, if you compare that even to the notional size of the U.S.-China deficit or the, the billions of dollars of theft that the president's talking about, it feels pretty small fry. Well, this is not meant to solve all of the trade issues between ourselves and China by itself. This is meant to deal with a specific set of issues, namely the intellectual property right problem. And that's why it is somewhat limited in scope. But it still feels like a small sum, Commerce Secretary. If, if the president's talking about billions of dollars worth of theft, $12.5 billion, he's, I mean, his message was hundreds of billions of dollars in trade theft every year. Why is this figure so small? Well, this is not the only part of the remedies that will be sought from the intellectual property 201 investigation. As, as you'll see, within a matter of a few days, there are other components to it that you have to look at the aggregate, not just this one isolated piece. In a couple of days, what, what other components are we likely to hear about? Well, as you know, it's not my practice to get ahead of the president, so you'll see those as he announces them. Understood. Now, China has indicated that it will respond in kind. It's given a general warning against the U.S. taking measures detrimental to both sides and indicated it would take all necessary measures to defend its interests. Their warning of retaliation on everything from uh, soybeans to Boeing jets to our technology. What is the plan on how to respond? Or better yet, before we get there, have you heard from them? Well, they haven't yet seen the details. And they're, and they're being very thoughtful, as they always are, about what their response should be. So I would be very, very surprised if you'd hear anything specific out of them until they've had a chance to analyze the implications of what the president is doing. What response are we expecting, Commerce Secretary, from the Chinese? Well, I expect there will be a response. I think it'll be a measured response. These are very thoughtful, very serious people. They know the president is being very thoughtful and very serious. And I don't think anybody is just going to have a knee-jerk reaction to any of this. Trade is a very, very complicated issue. Intellectual property rights even more complicated. And therefore, people are going to take it both seriously and carefully. Right. I understand that people are approaching this with the, with the time and care it deserves. The president said there was ongoing negotiations. He called Xi Jinping a friend. Can you talk a little bit about the state of negotiation with the Chinese? Well, you're aware the president has made the request for a $100 billion immediate reduction in the trade deficit. That's a request that is being discussed. 
and we do not yet have a really definitive response to it. Can I just ask about the World Trade Organization as well? Is the U.S. administration planning to sue China for, for trade violations as part of this negotiation? Yes, I think Ambassador Lighthizer announced that that is one of the components of it. We, we've had a number of trade disputes with China that already have gone to the WTO in a different context. And with regards to the $100 billion reduction in the deficit that you just mentioned, have we presented any ideas to China about how they might come up with that kind of reduction? How feasible is it ultimately for China to, to achieve this? Oh, I think there are innumerable ways where they could achieve it if they desired to do so. The simplest one would be to divert to the U.S. purchases that they are already making of products from other countries. For example, LNG. As you know, when we were over there in November and even earlier when we were back at Mar-a-Lago, there was discussion and some tentative deals announced. China needs to import very, very large amounts of LNG. And from their point of view, it would be very logical to import more of it from us, if for no reason other than to diversify their sources of supply. But it would also have the side effect of reducing the deficit. Similarly, while in some ways they've threatened about soybeans, various agricultural products could be more purchased from the U.S. than they are at present. And there are a number of agricultural products that so far are being relatively resisted by the Chinese from meaningful import. They could relax those restrictions. So there are a whole variety of relatively painless things that the Chinese could do. And then there are ones that would be more painful for them. Uh, eliminating some of the subsidies that result in their dumping product outside, eliminating some of the other uh, practices that coordinate their exports and cause disruption in international trade markets, including ourselves. So there are a whole variety of means. Chinese economy, like ours, is large and diverse. And there are many ways that one could go about solving this problem. Yeah, the, the LNG one's a super interesting example. Just for our radio viewers, I want to remind you, we are speaking to U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross at this moment. Scarlett. Mr. Secretary, before I move on to the steel tariffs, I just have a quick question, follow-up on the point on intellectual property rights. How does the U.S. expect to enforce intellectual property rights? It's, some people liken it to a Wild West frontier when it comes to intellectual property. I'm wondering what kind of steps the U.S. can take. Well, you will see as we roll out the rest of the program, one, prob one issue is to put tariffs on certain products that creates an economic burden on the Chinese in virtue of the intellectual property rights offenses that they're committing. But there are other things as well, potentially relating to investments, uh, potentially relating to all kinds of other segments of the economy and of their society. 
Let's move on to steel tariffs. Uh, obviously, the negotiating process is taking place right now uh, with different countries. At this point, what countries will be excluded when the tariffs take effect at midnight tonight, permanently excluded? Well, when you say permanently excluded, the president has not announced any permanent exclusions. What he has announced so far is about Canada and Mexico, and those are, in effect, abeyances pending the successful outcome of negotiations with them. What we need to accomplish is, if it's not going to be through the particular mechanism of tariffs, there must be some other set of measures that is equally beneficial to the United States or more from the point of view of economic security and military security. There's a lot of disappointment in the markets from corporates, steel corporates in particular, because they're looking at the suspensions here, the exclusions, even on a temporary basis, and they're saying, actually, this has got far less bite than the initial bark, Commerce Secretary. What do you say to those that are disappointed? Are there going to be benefits to the steel and aluminium industry, or in the end, are there going to be so many exclusions that actually these sectors aren't protected in the way that you were anticipating? Well, there are a whole lot of questions in that, but I'll try to answer them. You're assuming that the exclusions will not come with any sort of constraint on steel and aluminum. That's not a well-founded assumption. So that's the first thing. We are not going to sacrifice our steel and our aluminum industry. Our objective is to rehabilitate them, create them in a position where they can deal with our economic security and our national security. For purposes of the Section 232 of the 1962 Act, and that's the enabling legislation under which we're acting, for those purposes, national security is not defined narrowly as military defense. That's a component of it, but there are many other broader economic components, because we recognize that economic security is national security, and without economic security, you cannot and will not have national security. Wilbur Ross, our thanks to the U.S. Commerce Secretary for joining us on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Well, we got that right because we have Josh Wright. He is the chief economist for iSims. He can be followed on Twitter at jwrightstuff. And also you can follow iSims at I-C-M-I-S. All right, jwrightstuff, what did you think of Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve's first press conference in his role as the uh, nation's central banker? Well, this was the continuity candidate, and we definitely saw a continuity in terms of substance. Uh, very similar approach to how he's handling the data and how he's handling the overall monetary policy framework. But wow, what a difference in style. This was a man who is very comfortable being in front of an audience and being in front of a, a difficult audience, in fact. He's testified before Congress many times before in his prior positions. And of course, he's trained as a lawyer, and that showed he was very articulate, very crisp, shied away from some of the details that some prior Fed uh, um, chairs have gone into who are trained as academic economists. So a little bit less focused on the minutiae and more focused on the bottom line and getting across a clear message. And that message was and is? 
was that they are still waiting. He didn't use the terms data dependence, but very much waiting to see how the outlook evolves. They're confident. Um, and also he was uh, making it clear that he wanted to downplay all the hoopla around the dots and around the overall economic projections, saying this is really not that is not what the committee is agreeing to. It's not a coordinated policy signaling mechanism. It's more of an FYI to the market. You've got to focus on the statement to see our considered ratified opinion as a group. All right. So what did you take away from that? Are we still headed for three additional interest rate increases of 25 basis points each? Well, I think the message from the Fed is that they're not going to signal anything more than that. But the reality is that they're very much ready to move on for if they see enough justification in the data. And I think that that is what we're going to get out of the data itself over the course of the year. You think the economy is in such a position that it would warrant that kind of increase? I think there's a very strong case for that because we're going to have inflation turning up by the end of the year, uh, probably just in a couple of months. We'll see that rising. Where is that going to come from, that inflation? A lot of it's going to come from simply uh, the disappearance of the remarkably soft uh, inflation reports that we had in the first half of 2017. All that. Yeah, but talk wait, about- wait, 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 no. Just, but I mean, where is the in- where is the increase in cost going to show up? Is it going to show up in material goods? Is it going to show up in the increase in the cost of, let's say, being able to buy a home? Where is Where do you see that inflation uh, accelerating? It's going to show up in the cost of telecom services and medicine, precisely those categories where we saw dramatic declines in prices uh, last year that were very surprising and dismissed as transitory factors. And we had that whole back and forth in the second half of 2017. Are these really transitory factors? Can transitory really last that long? Lo and behold, we are seeing that it that it really is transitory. And it's but what, very what, to for, let's just take telecom services, and I'm thinking there, let's say mobile phones, right? What leads you to believe that there's going to be an increase in the cost of mobile communication? There's a one-time markdown uh, because of the uh, changing in the pricing that we had last year regarding uh, the data plans that telecom uh, companies were providing to consumers. That's a one-time effect that happened last year, so that led to a dramatic decline in March of 2017. That's not going to get repeated. Uh, 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 But let me me just push back a little bit, because, I mean, I've already gotten uh, promotional uh, uh, advertisements from uh, various mobile carriers saying, oh, have another line free with your uh, current uh, with your current account or various kinds of promotions of that nature in in the context of not wanting to necessarily upgrade to a $1000 you know iPhone 10 or or a new Samsung 9 well, first of all, it sounds like I could use some recommendations for whose mailing list to get on, but I think uh, you know anecdotal evidence you're a very desirable consumer. Not everyone's getting that deal. We're looking about we're looking at prices across the entire economy. Okay, so you think that we're going to see an acceleration in inflation? Does that mean we're going to see an increase in bond yields? That's very likely. Yes. Although today it's a funny day to be talking about that with a 30-year yield bond down by several basis points. Well, I understand, but that's a day-to-day thing, and it may be driven by a variety of different factors. Uh, but with the acceleration in inflation, would be then we'll see, as you say, increase in bond yields. Would we also see increase in wages? Increase in bond yields also not just because of inflation, but it's important to remember that still in the background, the Fed is winding down its balance sheet. And Chair Powell was asked about this yesterday. Are they going to consider possibly changing that? He said, no way. That is a done deal. We're not going back on that. With less support from the Fed, those yields are going to rise over time. 
And so do you think that wages will increase as well? We'll see a, a pickup in, in wages that will then translate into this acceleration of inflation? I think so, but I think that wages are going to be more of a lagging indicator in this particular cycle. Um, they're going to follow rather than lead inflation uh, because we're just not seeing that kind of price pressure come out of the labor market. Thank you very much for being here. Always uh, interesting, always thoughtful. Much appreciated. Uh, Josh Wright, Chief Economist for iSIMS. You can follow him on Twitter at jwrightstuff. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.